Ephesians chapter 6. Our text for today is verses 10 through 12. And as we begin, let me read those for us. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Father, as we open your word now and consider what has been written for us, I pray that our eyes would be opened. I pray that as we regularly pray, that Your Spirit would come and, and do a, a heart and life-changing work in us. And I pray that as we are reminded about the, the reality of which we will study today, that You would do a work in our hearts. And where our minds need to be changed, You would change our minds. Where conviction of sin needs to take place, you would convict us of our sin. Where we need to find the blessedness of our Savior again today, I pray that your Spirit would show that in in new and fresh ways. Above all, I pray that your name would be magnified in everything we see and, and hear. And that our hearts would be strengthened and encouraged in the reality of our salvation through Jesus Christ. And if there would be anyone here today who is yet outside of Christ, who who does not yet enjoy the blessedness of that salvation, that Your Spirit would open their eyes today and that today would be a day of saving faith for them. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a setting, maybe in a a lecture or I guess maybe a sermon? I know this was my experience in in college. I I thought this week of coming to the end of of a class period or or maybe at the end of a, a sermon and the speaker, the teacher, the preacher, whatever, would would use some phrase that that would kind of indicate that they were almost done. Maybe you knew the time was getting close. And you knew that they were just about done. And I remember when I was in college, you'd get close to the end of that period and, and you'd hear people close their books. You'd hear them pack their bags because they knew the, the end was coming. And I had that sense as I was reading this text as we're coming near the end of the letter to the Ephesians. And Paul begins verse 10 with the word, Finally. And he's going to proceed. And I can almost imagine if we were receiving this letter like the Ephesians did and we read it aloud in, in one of our gatherings as they would have done. And whoever was reading had read through all that we have studied over these last several months and come to verse 10. Of course, they wouldn't have had the verses then. But comes to this part of the letter after it had been going for a while and there had been much considered. And 
gets to the word finally. And you can almost imagine we would, we would kind of be like, okay, it's wrapping up. And we would be tempted to just mentally check out that, okay, here's the, the pleasantries at the end. There's, there's nothing more of real significance, or at least that's what we indicate when we mentally check out in that way, when we feel the end is coming. I hope that we'll not let that happen in our study through the book of Ephesians. Because actually, the word finally here is not so much a, an indication that the end is, is approaching and the closing is, is beginning to occur, but it actually, the word used here, and not to be overly grammatical, but is more of an indication of this is, this is where this has all been leading. This is, this is now in light of everything that we have learned up to this point. This is the response. This is, this is where we have been pressing toward up to this point. We could translate it, kind of an old word, a word we don't use much, to be henceforth. Kind of, okay, moving forward, what are we to do in light of all that we have, have understood and know, having read this letter? And so we come to these three verses for our time together today, not as the beginning of an insignificant part of the end, but actually as, as a very key part of our Steps of obedience, having obeyed the things that we have studied and have learned and, and grown in. And the reality that, that our attention is drawn to in these three verses and really the next several verses that we'll, we'll see also next week is the reality of spiritual warfare. And maybe spiritual warfare is perhaps not a topic that would be on the top of your list to, to hear about today and to study. There could be many reasons for that. Maybe it's just a scary topic for you. The idea of spiritual warfare, this spiritual battle that is going on. Maybe it's a confusing topic. I can think of many crazy ideas that are out there on demons and the devil and spiritual powers. And, and maybe you just approach... The idea of spiritual warfare is, this is all just overwhelming and confusing. I would rather not study it or consider it. But I think in God's providence, of course, He's given us this text for today to to gain something from as it relates to the, the reality of spiritual warfare. What do we need to understand about this spiritual battle taking place? And I think there's probably two possible, among among several perhaps, dangers that we face when we consider the nature of our enemy in this spiritual battle that we're in. On one hand, there is the danger of ignorance, of not realizing that there is an enemy out there, and then opening ourselves up to the attacks from that enemy. I mean, that, that is certainly a danger that, that we face as we deal with the topic of spiritual warfare, ignorance of our enemy. But there's also this second danger, kind of on the other side, where there is such a preoccupation with the enemy that we, we become, in a sense, paralyzed in response to him. That we spend so much time understanding and studying who he is and what he does that, that we can do nothing else but, but to sit in fear. And I believe that What God wants us to learn today, what I think this text is revealing to us today, is that 
There's, in a sense, a middle ground. There, there's room, there's, there's a place in between those two extremes that we, need to, that we need to land in. We need to understand that there is a real spiritual enemy, that we are in a battle against spiritual wickedness. But on the other hand, we need to understand that we have a Savior who has rescued us from His clutches, who by virtue of his work, enables us to be victorious over him. So that we are neither blind to his attacks, but we're also not paralyzed in fear at what he might do and how he might attack us. I want to draw out really two key thoughts from this text for us, and hopefully we can get these in our minds and and understand these above all else. The first key thought is the fact that we are in a battle against spiritual powers. We must understand, every one of us, we are in a battle against spiritual powers. And then secondly, we overcome the enemy through the power of God. So having understood that we truly are in a battle, we also must understand that we overcome that enemy through the power of God. These are, these are the two big ideas from these three verses that I want us to see. I want us to grasp. I want us to, to actually believe in our heart so that they would change the way that we live. Now, if the first part of this seems discouraging and hopeless, and even as we move on to through the, this consideration of our enemy, hang on, because the second part is more than makes up for it. We find the comfort and the hope and the joy in this battle because of the power of God that works for us. So as we first consider this enemy that we are in battle with, the spiritual powers that we are in battle with, don't be discouraged, don't be, don't be hopeless. Anticipate and then rejoice in the great hope of the power of God to overcome this enemy. So first big idea, we are in a battle against spiritual powers. I believe this text, and as we're going to see in the next few minutes, other texts in Scripture leave us with no other option. We must affirm the existence of spiritual powers that are antagonistic against us. We've seen earlier in this letter, and we know from throughout Scripture, that we have an enemy within us, our our own hearts. That, that fights against us, that battles against us. Paul's written about that in Ephesians. Other New Testament writers have written about that topic. But we also have an enemy from without that we do battle with. And really, the, it's the combination of those two things, this enemy within and this enemy without, that work together to conspire against us that makes this spiritual warfare such a serious thing, something we need to consider. And as far as the specific spiritual powers that Paul writes about here, specifically in verse 12, he talks about rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I mean, we could probably spend several minutes, and, and many have, trying to determine who these are, what these symbolize. But I don't, I don't think that's where we need to spend our time today. I think... The, the point that we need to understand is there is a spiritual enemy. 
Scripture and this text specifically refer to him as the devil. The devil and his demons. The devil and his, his associates. Those who assist him in this battle. This text describes this conflict with, with two different images. First, it, it describes this warfare as a, as a war, a battle. It talks about taking on armor. It talks about standing up against rulers and powers. There is this imagery of battle. We'll see in the rest of this text next week. This armor that we're to take on. So there is the imagery of battle. It warns us against what Paul refers to as the schemes of the devil. And we know, and we're going to see in just a second, a little more about what this, what this scheming of the devil looks like. How, how we experience this, perhaps in our lives. How we can better prepare to face it. But the picture here is, is in the midst of the battle, this field general planning out his next move. Planning how best to overcome the enemy. Devising schemes and strategies to do so. So understanding that we are in a battle against not just any enemy, but an enemy that is actively scheming and strategizing against us. Paul uses the imagery of warfare elsewhere in his writing. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. He says something very similar to this text. He says, For, we though, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And so the fact is, this is not, we're not battling against flesh and blood, as he says, against, against human powers. We are battling spiritual forces. Not only does this text, these verses, have the imagery of a battle, of a war, they also have this, the imagery of the hand-to-hand struggle of wrestling which is a very different image than that of, of battle. In the way that we think of battle, you think of wrestling as being you are, you are locked together. You are grappling together in hand-to-hand conflict. You're looking your enemy right in the eye. This is the nature of this spiritual battle that every one of us faces. We have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, the devil, that conspires with our own hearts to work against us, to draw us to sin. The Bible paints quite a picture of the devious working of Satan. Satan's main mission is a mission of destruction. He wants to do a destructive work. Whatever God is accomplishing and has accomplished through the gospel, whatever heights to which we have seen God work in Ephesians 1 through 6 up to this point. Satan is conspiring to destroy all those. Where God has broken down that wall between, between us, unifying us through Christ, Satan wants to bring, build up those walls again to divide us. Where God has, in the gospel, freed us from the bondage that we had to sin. Satan wants to lock us into bondage, just as Josh prayed earlier, that that we, we bring ourselves back into that prison as though we were never freed. That's Satan's purpose. 
He wants nothing more than for us to live back in that prison, back in bondage to sin. So let me walk us through here as we understand the seriousness of this spiritual battle. I think that's the, that's the point I want us to understand in this first part, that this is a real battle. This is a real enemy that really hates us. This isn't something that we can take lightly. This isn't a game. This isn't just crazy things that we might think are portrayed in the, in the pages of Scripture. This is a real enemy that hates you as God's child. So let me walk through a little bit of how the, how the Scriptures describe Satan, the devil, and his work. Well, first of all, Jesus himself was tempted by the devil. Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, encountered the same enemy that we face. The Gospels record that during Jesus' earthly ministry, he faced a period of direct temptation. We find that recorded in Matthew chapter 4. Let me just read verses 8 through 10. This is just one of the temptations that, that the devil presented to Jesus during that period of time. Matthew 4, verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan's purpose was to usurp the the place that God Himself possessed, the, the high and lofty place where He deserved all worship and praise and desired that Jesus would direct that praise to Himself, to the, to the devil. And in fact, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, we see several times this effort by Satan to disrupt what Christ was there to accomplish. In fact, even at one point when Jesus was talking about the fact that he was going to go to Jerusalem to be delivered over and to die, this is Matthew 16, Peter, one of his disciples, objected to that. And what was Jesus' response to Peter's objection to what Christ had come to do? It was strong words, get behind me, Satan. Peter was demonstrating the Spirit through his words exactly what the devil wanted. He wanted Christ to fail in the mission that he had come to accomplish. And I think one of the, the takeaways for us in, in seeing Jesus facing temptation is, we'll get to, I think, the bigger takeaway in the second part, but one of the takeaways is the fact that Satan has real power. I think any, any person that would think that they could overcome Jesus, that they could tempt Jesus, that they could destroy the purpose for which Jesus came to this earth was somebody that had real power, the thought that he could accomplish what he set out to do. So again, I think this, the reality that Jesus faced temptation from the devil, the devil set his sights on Jesus during his earthly ministry here is just an indication of how powerful he was. He thought he could take down the Son of God himself. 
Again, I'm holding, I think, the bigger takeaway for the second half. But for now, let's move ahead to the second aspect of, or second characteristic of, of Satan's work of evil. Satan slanders God's people before God. And I think the first example that probably comes to our mind is the example of Job. Job 1 records that Satan responds to the Lord's the, the, the Lord's praise of Job as, a, as a, a worshiper of God. Satan answers him. Does Job fear God for no reason? Haven't you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan slanders God's people before God. This example is also instructive for us because what's more here, God allowed Satan to prove his accusation true by testing Job. God released Satan to attempt to prove what he had accused Job of. And again, I think this is sobering on the one hand and and instructive on the other because it, it shows us that when we are facing testing, temptation, when we are facing this enemy, God is not uninvolved and absent in that. And I think, again, we're going to see more of this in a bit later. We're going to see the way that God works in that. But I think it's important for us to understand that and, and not to mistake everything Every testing, every difficulty that, that we go through as, as merely the work of Satan. And view God as absent from any difficulty and testing that we face. The Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign and in control and directing the steps of his people. Therefore, God is not taking a nap when we encounter difficulty. God is involved in that. Sometimes he releases Satan to do his work for a period of time. And while God is not the author of sin, God does, and God does not tempt us himself to sin. God does test us through, through this process of bringing us through to face this enemy. But as we'll see, and, and here's where I, I want us to not jump to too many conclusions at this point because there's, there's a big hopeful message in just a bit. But God is not uninvolved and absent when we go through difficulty. He is not, he is not absent when we encounter this, this enemy. He's with us. We also know from other places in Scripture, not just Job, that there is this ongoing heavenly conversation, as you will, this accusation by Satan before God. Revelation 12, verse 10 says this, And I heard a loud voice, as John records what he sees and hears, I heard a loud voice saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. 
So the second big work that I want us to, to see of Satan is that he is a slanderer. He is an accuser of God's people before God. Revelation describes him as the one who accuses the brothers day and night before God. It's the, the image of just, he, he is all the time accusing us before God. And I think, just as, as a bit of an aside, but Satan is also a slanderer to you and I. Satan also slanders us to our own consciences. Satan will, through the work of our mind and our hearts, will remind us of our sinfulness. He will remind us of the place that we were rescued out of. He, will, he, he wants nothing more than to, to take us back there. He wants nothing more than for us to, to live back in that condition. And so not only does Satan slander us before God, but he slanders us before ourselves, to our own conscience. Thirdly, the devil <clears throat> attempts to interfere with the preaching of the word. Luke 8 records for us the, the parable Jesus told of the sower. And if you remember... There was the sower and, and there were four types of soil that, that the seed fell on as he just cast the seed out. And one of those types of soil was the path, the trampled path that people walked on. And Luke 8 verse 5 describes this. A sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And then in verse 11, Jesus explains the parable this way. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Satan, the devil, attempts to interfere with the preaching of the word by striving to get us to doubt. Striving to that we would fail to believe that which we read and study, that which God reveals to us. He takes away that truth that God is speaking to our heart so that we would not believe it, so that our lives would not be changed, even to the point that, as Jesus describes, we would not be saved. Satan attempts to interfere with the preaching of the Word. He wants us to doubt whether what we, what we have learned about God, what we know to be true about God, is actually true. One of Satan's purposes is that we would not believe what God has revealed to us. And I don't think it's inaccurate to say that every time we encounter the Word of God, whether it be conviction of sin or additional knowledge and understanding in our experience of God's goodness and love, Satan is right there behind it trying to distort that which we have learned. Trying to distort our understanding of the truth. Trying to minimize our vision of God. Trying to minimize our experience of God's goodness and love in our lives. That's something that is not truly good. He wants nothing more than to interfere with the preaching and ministry of God's Word to our hearts. 
Fourth, the devil prowls around seeking to deceive and destroy us. You recognize the, the phraseology there of the devil prowling around. 1 Peter 5.8 describes the devil as our adversary who prowls around as a roaring lion seeking to devour us. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes about him this way, Such men, those who oppose the gospel, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The great danger that the devil presents for us is the the deceit. The devil does not come to us with truth. He comes to us as a liar. John 6.44 Jesus speaking to those who opposed him here. You are of your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This was, this was the devil's work from the very beginning of Scripture. He entered the garden and deceived Adam and Eve into sin. He does a work of, of deceit in order to destroy us. The cumulative effect of this picture of the work of Satan, these four big things among others, the fact that he tempted Jesus. The fact that he slanders us before God. The fact that he attempts to interfere in the working of God's word in our hearts. And the fact that he, he works in a deceitful and destructive way. The cumulative effect of this picture leads us, I believe, to no other conclusion than that we truly do face a real spiritual enemy. A dangerous enemy. An enemy that is more powerful than we are in ourselves. But hopefully, and certainly it's not the purpose of me today and not the purpose of Paul as he wrote this letter to to leave us in that state of hopelessness because he gives us the hope how do we how do we face this enemy what do we need to understand in this spiritual warfare on the one hand the, the enemy is real and the enemy is dangerous but on the other hand we overcome the enemy through the power of god this is the second big idea that i want us to to grasp today and hopefully this if you grasp one more than the other hopefully this is the one you grasp more we overcome the enemy through the power of God. Whereas the enemy is, is powerful, God is much more powerful. The unchangeable reality that we must know and understand is that God is the only sovereign. Satan is not sovereign. God is the only sovereign. And he rules all things and overcomes all enemies. But there's both an active and passive sense to this encounter that we read about here. As we prepare to engage the enemy in battle, there, there, 
there is activity that we need to do. There's also activity that we need to receive. It's obscured a little bit in our English translation, but the exhortation by Paul in verse 10 to be strong in the Lord is actually in the passive. It's actually be strengthened in the Lord. Receive the strength of the Lord. That is, the strengthening for this battle comes from a source outside of ourselves. It comes from someone with more power than we possess within ourselves. There is also a sense, though, that we are actively involved in the preparation for this battle. Not only are we to receive the strength of the Lord, but we are commanded here in verse 11 to put on the whole armor of God. There is a sense in which we are called to prepare for this battle. It would be a mistake to miss either one of these. It's a mistake to just hope that we will be strengthened by God without taking any preparations for ourselves. But it would also be a mistake for us to work so hard to prepare ourselves for battle and yet forget the most important piece of the armor, so to speak, the strength of the Lord. The present tense of these verbs used here indicates that this is the ongoing practice of our lives. This being strengthened and taking on the armor of the Lord is something that is it's a regular occurrence. These aren't things that will happen today or can happen today and they're, they're good for the rest of our lives. These are things that must be done on an ongoing basis. It's almost the imagery of a soldier. Think of a soldier. I don't know what they did. Maybe they slept in their armor. Perhaps they did. But it's like the soldier getting up every morning, putting on the armor, getting ready for that day's battle. It wasn't good to just dress in the armor yesterday. That, that does us no good for today's battle. This being strengthened and putting on the, the armor of God is a, a daily, a regular practice. It's an ongoing practice of our lives. And maybe you've seen even some, some strong connections to earlier parts of the book of Ephesians. I think one of the most obvious is just the terminology of being strengthened in the Lord. We look back in chapter 3, verse 16. Paul prayed exactly for that, that we would be strengthened in the power of the Spirit. And so again, there is this active and passive thing. Paul prays that we would be strengthened, but yet then encourages us to have a part in the fulfillment, the answer to that prayer. The ways, one of the ways that we can be strengthened in the Lord through the power of the Spirit is the taking on of this armor. We're going to see in the next section all of, the, all of what the armor is and, and how, we, how we do this a little more, in a little more detail. But I warned us earlier that the first part of this message would be potentially discouraging and hopeless. I mean, it's, it's not easy to, to consider the, the reality of our enemy and to be reminded of the heinousness of his acts and the, the destruction that he call, causes, the, 
the deceit with which he, he comes to us. But now I believe that we are, we are prepared to, to see that through the strengthening of the Spirit, we are able to experience the comfort and the hope and the joy needed to endure and overcome the enemy. So the first thing I want us to see under this big idea of we overcome the enemy through God's power is that God's power demonstrated in the, re- in the resurrection is the power that is at work in us. Again, this is another connection back to something Paul talked about earlier in the book of Ephesians. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 19, he describes the power that was displayed in Christ's resurrection. And again, this is in the context of one, one of Paul's prayers. He prayed that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power, that he worked or according to the working of his power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. In fact, that phrase, the working of his power, is the same phrase used here, the strength of his might. There is this connection. The power that we need and have to overcome the enemy in this spiritual warfare is the power that has already been demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. We considered the magnitude of this reality a bit when we studied that text earlier when we went through chapter 1. But I want us to renew the call today to appropriate that power in our, in our own experience. And I kind of struggled with how, how do we do this? How do we, how do we say appropriate that power to your life? Utilize that power in your life. I mean, how do you, how do, you do that? And I don't know that I've come up with a, a great answer, but one of the things that I considered was that I, I believe to the degree that we live in this ongoing, daily, regular dependence on the strength of the Lord, the degree to which we do that is the indication of how much we actually, or how powerfully we actually believe that resurrection power is. If we, for whatever reason, fail to throw ourselves on the power, on this power, in an ongoing way, if we, as we continue to study this text, again, we'll define the armor of, of God a little bit later, but if we fail to do these things, if we fail to regularly put on the armor of God, if we fail to get in a position to be strengthened by the Lord, I believe that's an indication that we, we somehow don't believe and don't comprehend this immeasurable power that God demonstrated by raising Christ from the dead. When we understand what power is or when something is powerful, we either stay away from it because it's going to destroy us or we hang on to it because it's going to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. And so we begin simply with a recognition that God alone is the one that possesses all power and dominion because of this resurrection power. And it ultimately gets to this heart of worship 
worship. Ascribing to God what is alone His. The power and dominion. And then experiencing joy and confidence in our King. Clinging to Him as the source of our power rather than living in fear and desperation. Let me just read for us a couple verses that that I think minister this truth to our hearts. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came, partook of the same things, the the flesh and blood, so that He might die and conquer death through the resurrection power, that you and I would would no longer be subject to lifelong slavery. We would not be subject to be in bondage and defeat to the one who had the power of death, the devil. But we are freed. He has destroyed the power of death. He has destroyed the enemy. And our call now is to grab onto Him in a regular and ongoing way. In a way that that demonstrates that we actually believe this is the source of power. And we experience victory when that power works through us to overcome the enemy. To overcome the temptations to sin that we face every day. That overcomes... The deceit, the deceit of the enemy that opens our eyes to be wise to his attacks. That is the power. This resurrection power is the power that is at work in us. That power, that might that we are strengthened in, it's the might, it's the power that raised Christ from the dead. Secondly, Jesus himself understands our battle and advocates for us. We saw earlier that Jesus faced temptation from the devil. Jesus faced this very same spiritual battle that you and I face. And He now advocates on our behalf. He understands our battle and He advocates for us. One of the most heartening comforts for those of us in Christ is the knowledge that Jesus has already experienced what we have what we are experiencing jesus understands what we are facing again hebrews this time chapter four since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this expands on on our understanding of this power available to us. Not only do, do we have resurrection power, but out of that flows this identification that Jesus has with our need. Jesus understands our need. Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted to sin. Jesus understands what it's like to fight this battle. And He now 
having passed through the heavens, as, as Hebrews 4 says, sits at the right hand of the Father advocating for us. 1 John 2.1 John writes, My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. So his purpose for writing to these Christians is that they would not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And what an encouragement when we are reminded of the slanderer slandering us before God. We also have a much more powerful advocate at God's right hand who has who has come in the flesh and offered himself for our salvation and now pleads before the Father that when we go to the throne of grace, recognizing our need, go to the throne of grace, the throne of mercy, the throne of grace, we find mercy and grace in time of need. What a powerful antidote to the slanderer. We have one who advocates on our behalf. That one that was raised from the dead is our advocate. Thirdly, we are assured of ultimate victory because God has already won the battle. We saw in the first part that the battle is real, the enemy is is dangerous. But we are assured of ultimate victory. That, that dangerous enemy has already been defeated. And at risk of using a phrase that we've become so accustomed to, there is an already and not yet aspect of this battle. You see, because we still fight this battle, but the battle has already been won. The battle has already been won decisively. But we have not yet experienced in its fullness the spoils of victory. But this, I trust, will be another point that will minister grace and, and power to our hearts as we go through the bat- our battle with, with sin, our battles with temptation, our battles with the enemy, our battles with doubt, our battles with unbelief. That enemy is fighting a losing battle against us. He's already lost. That's why he's so desperate. He is already lost. Yes, he's powerful. But he is fighting a losing battle. We read earlier from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. That was the record of Satan's ultimate defeat. He has already been defeated. And though he is though he is very real, though the temptations are real, though the though the 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 deceiver deceives us still, he has already lost. And as we move next week to see this armor of God that we take on to encounter this battle. We do so with the full confidence that we are going into a winning battle. We're not going as as terrified opponents, fearing defeat. 
we go in following our, our conquering king who has already defeated that enemy. And we now get to go enjoy the experience of that victory with him. We will be singing in just a minute the song that we sing regularly, O Church Arise. And I just wanted to read the lyrics to that, that song. It's, it's very appropriate for our study today. And I read these maybe just as, as a way to prepare us for when we sing it, we can actually rejoice in its truth maybe more than we would if, if our hearts were not prepared for it. So as I read these, anticipate singing these in worship to our, our conquering King as we consider the victory that He has won for us. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith, And belt of truth will stand against the devil's lies. An army bold, whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced With trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which He died, an inheritance of nations. Come, see the cross where love and mercy meet. As the Son of God is stricken, then see His foes lie crushed beneath His feet, for the conqueror has risen. And as the stone is rolled away and Christ emerges from the grave, this victory march continues till the day every eye and heart shall see Him. So Spirit, come, put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle. That we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of His grace. We hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. And I, I, my hope is that as we, as we sing that, as we consider this and, and other songs and other passages of Scripture, our hearts would not cower in fear before our enemy, but we re, would, would rejoice in the Victory that has been won and the power that now works through us to overcome His schemes in our daily life. We also have the privilege of partaking of the Lord's table together. This is another opportunity that we have to remember that work Jesus came and took on human flesh so that He could die and and shed His blood for the remission of our sin. We have an opportunity to celebrate that reality. And My prayer and my hope is that we can come to this table in a fresh way, being reminded of all that He has accomplished for us. And as we partake of these elements, 
They will be, in a sense, the food that we need for the battle ahead. Not a food of physical strength, but a food of spiritual strength. Ministering the grace that we need to wake up tomorrow and, and, and face the enemy. And face his schemes. And so, we come to celebrate this table. And just as a reminder, this, this table is, is open to all. It is not limited merely to the members of our church. It's open to all who profess faith in Christ, who are trusting Christ as their Savior, who in the spiritual battles live in the, according to the power of, of God through Christ. It's a place that we can find forgiveness for sin and fresh strength to overcome the enemy. So, we will have a, a moment of, of quiet after I pray and take, take time to meditate on, on the truth that we have talked about. Spend time with the Lord tapping into the, the strength that He provides. And then as the, the music team begins to play, you come and, and partake of these elements. May it be an opportunity that we have to be invigorated through the truth of the gospel and the grace that is available for us. Father, thank you for the ministry of your word today. And I pray that you would remind us constantly of the the realities that we have talked about, both the reality of a powerful enemy, the reality of a fight. But even more than that, the reality of our King who has already conquered our enemy. And I pray that that truth would minister grace and power to us even in these moments as we come and, and partake of the, the blood that symbolizes your body that was broken for us and the cup that symbolizes your blood that was shed so that we might have forgiveness of sins. Thank you again for your grace. Thank you for your spirit, for ministering to our hearts through your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.